New Photic Realm announcement. Uh, submission windows for upcoming issues. Issue 10, the theme is justice. That's hard-boiled fiction with a supernatural twist. The deadline for that will be April 1st, 2020. Issue 11, the theme is kaiju. Giant monsters terrorizing civilization. Deadline will be October 1st, 2020 for those stories. Issue 12, the theme is lycanthropy, which is, of course, self-explanatory. Um, it can be any type of animorph with a bloody twist. Uh, so I guess that's werewolves and Jesus, giant, I don't know. What do people turn into? Seals? I've just got a little seal on my desk, so I thought of that. I don't know. You have to be more imaginative than I just was. Uh, but the deadline for lycanthropy, January 1st, 2021. Good luck to everyone submitting. This episode is SS Hack. Uh, she's an author that I got published alongside in a journal some years ago, and uh, we connected on social media after that. And then I interviewed her for Losing the Plot way back when, and then uh, we just decided to catch up and see how she's doing. And uh, it seems that we have like some overlapping taste in literature and uh, some overlapping goals as writer but in in other respects very different interests um, and so it was great to hear uh, what she's been up to and learn from her style of uh, approaching writing and uh, we had a great and very enjoyable chat and I hope you enjoy listening to it. If you are a reader, writer, editor, anyone who wants to be part of the show uh, or you just want to tell me something about it you can always do so using Losing the plot podcast at gmail.com and I look forward to hearing from you. But that's all my intro chat, so here is my chat with author SS Hack. You finished a poetry collection. I did, I did. Um, it was a little bit of a um, rush, actually, uh, because the opportunity to submit to um, this particular um, press came up and they were just you know they had a tight submission window and actually I wasn't going to submit anything because I didn't think I was really ready for a collection yet but I did really like the press and I wanted to build a relationship and in poetry I think just like in genre fiction it's much more personal like that and you have a lot of you know just labors of love basically that, that people do um and I think poetry is such a beautiful space for that um, and I really felt like they would get my stuff so very strongly encouraged by a good friend of mine who's also a poet um I went ahead and submitted something uh, which I wasn't entirely you know it's my first collection that I kind of pulled together I've never submitted one before um 
and I wasn't entirely happy with it, but I just thought, you know, I'm going to send it and see where it goes. So I did hear back actually, and I didn't get through, but I did get long listed and got some nice feedback. So that's nice. And, um, and I'd love to submit to them again. So um, it's nice to know that it's sort of looking like the kind of thing that they would like, which is great yeah so you know you learned more than if you hadn't submitted i mean it's like you say it's building relationships all this stuff counts you know um yeah of course all you ever see from the outside is the acceptances but it, it can take a very long time of back and forth and this project that project you know yeah yeah, yeah absolutely cool. i'm also very bad at submitting poetry because i think um i tend to focus on marketing my fiction and with poetry, I write poetry because I love poetry and I perform it because I love performing and I go to lots of poetry nights and read lots of poetry just because, you know, um, I'm, I'm so grateful that it exists in my life. But um, I never really think that seriously about pitching it. I know poets who will have spreadsheets of hundreds of poems and because journals take a long time to get back to you and things like that, you know, they're doing this very admin heavy work to make sure that they're keeping on getting the poems out there. And, you know, I don't do that. Um, I just throw them out there occasionally when I feel like it. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I mean, I kind of, um, I think the relief of having submit for so many years is I feel like if there was a way of knowing what they like, I would know that by now. And I don't, <laughs> you're just like, try it out. And it's nice because then you feel like maybe you weren't doing so badly as you thought in the past. Because in the past, I was like, God, I bet other writers really know what this person likes and stuff. Um, but I don't think even they know. I mean, I've been reading, I read books all the time. I can't even pick good books for myself. Like it's, <laughs> it's so subjective. Yeah, Definitely. Mm. And I think um, having heard from lots of agents over the years now, you know, I've been writing for over 10 years and, um, you know, my officially externally I'm not fully professional because I'm not represented and I write literary fiction and you know that's what it takes to get a book out there when you're writing in this genre um much more traditional path to publishing you know um at least that's what I'm after um but you do know enough at this point having interacted with the industry and people in it that um, to some extent, the reason why, you know, agent profiles will say things like, well, you know, I, I like this and I like that, but, you know, actually, I'll just know if I love something when it's in front of me. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's the same as, yeah, choosing a book to read, as you say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. And I think you, were you working on a novel as well? Yeah, so I'm, I'm always working on a novel. So I'm currently working on one which I started writing back in 2018. So actually, the last time we spoke, I think I would have almost finished my last one, um, which I pitched in 2018. Um, I had a couple of nice rejections. That was pretty much it. And um, again, I probably should have pushed it out further, but then I got very excited about my next one, which is a very, very different novel. So the last novel was set between um it, the first half was set in 2001 um and it followed the friendship of two young women who were finishing their a-levels so it's the last year of a-levels and then um it switches to 2015 to 2016 and the lead up to the eu referendum vote 
So um, the two women are now adults living in London and um, they're professionals both involved in the referendum campaign in some way or other or in government. And um, one of them is Bangladeshi British and the other one is white British. And essentially it's a kind of microcosm. The EU referendum campaign happens to their friendship um, and it goes through a real test. Um, so that's set in London mainly and in Kent um, and quite a contemporary novel, uh, lots of Shakespeare and drum and bass and clubbing and poetry and all sorts of things, uh, fun nights in Soho and stuff like that among all of this. Um, and then I sort of just came up with this idea and I won't tell you exactly what it's about because I don't want to jinx it and I'm, I'm still finishing the draft, but um, it's set in the late sixth century in Arabia um, and it's about a very significant woman um, from that time. And um, it's it's basically a love story, but um, it's a, it kind of meets in the middle between historical fiction and myth retelling. Um, and it kind of came about from, I was brought up Muslim and um, I grew up with all of the stories about, you know, the prophet and, and that time in um, history, but not really about the history itself. Um, and I didn't really know anything about sixth century Arabia. Um, and at the same time, in 2018, there were there were a slew of, well, not a slew, but a few novels that came out of um, kind of myth retellings, um, often centered around female characters. Um, so things like um, Circe by Madeline Miller, which I'm obsessed with, and I have now, I think since it came out, read three times. Um, her book came out and then Daisy Johnson's um, Everything Under came out, which is the retelling of Oedipus. Um, and there were various others. There was also um, a new translation of the Odyssey, um, which sort of, it translates the text um, from the Greek with much more of a focus on basically the, the sexist translations that have come before and fixing some of that and really going down to, her name is Emily somebody, and I'm sorry, can't remember her name, but um, goes down to the detail of particular words and how they've been translated by men in history into English and have therefore changed the meaning and the position of women in the book, um, which is so interesting. So all of this stuff was happening with, with Greek myths being retold, uh, which I thought was fascinating, but um, I sort of thought, well, we all know the Greeks, don't we? And um, I love those books, but it's interesting that nobody's really looking east. And I just sort of thought, well, obviously I, I would be a person who would look east. And I go back over my, um, just sort of into my childhood. And I think about um, the heroes and heroines that I had when I was growing up. And there were very few brown women, but there were some brown women that were really, really important. And some of them were the prophet's wives. Um, and I remembered that I was sort of obsessed with these women and, and read about them as much as I could and stuff when I was a teenager. And so I started to look at that. And then the sixth century Arabia, I'd basically been half living my life in that time for the last 18 months, over 18 months, I'd say, writing this book. Um, and I can't explain to you what an amazing experience it has been researching this book. Uh, first of all, I never thought I'd write historical fiction. Secondly, I say that it's uh, at, at the crossroads of those two um, things, um, myth retelling and 
historical fiction because there isn't that much um, tangible evidence, um, you know, manuscripts and objects and things um, found from the time. So because so much of it was oral storytelling um, and the importance of poetry during that time was so huge. Um, and the tribal politics and how cosmopolitan it was and how trade um, and Mecca as a trading center for Arabia was um, brought all of these different cultures into that space from all the way from Syria down to Yemen and, and all the way across. Um, and all of these things that I just didn't know about that time, because what you are taught when you're brought up Muslim is that the time before the prophet is known as the time of ignorance or jahiliya. And obviously there's some understandable propaganda there, which is that we're replacing, you know, bad sort of, um, you know, idol worshipping, bad politics, you know, bad moral backdrop. And there was a lot of that tribal fighting and, and lots of horrible things like, you know, the killing of um, female babies and stuff like that. Um, but there was also such a culturally rich cosmopolitan um just dialogue and the meeting of um all of these different languages and so much poetry and i've just i've fallen in love with it honestly i'm probably romanticizing it who knows what it was like at the time but nobody does so <laughs> yeah <laughs> well people would come to you for your interpretation of it i mean i can tell that it was obviously a big a big passion of yours. Um, how did you go about researching it? So, um, I guess the thing I had to do, you know, I'm a novelist, so first of all, I need to build a world. And I've always built worlds in locations, cities, um, even cultures that I know very, very well. So, you know, I don't need to uh, try really hard to imagine London when I'm writing London. That just comes automatically. So the first thing actually about the research was how do I research successfully enough to be able to build this world? And I didn't know how difficult it was going to be, to be honest with you, because I realised that I'm completely ignorant of this time. Everything that I know about this time, um, I know as sort of a backdrop to the religion that I was brought up in. Um, but we weren't taught about history and things like that. And of course, you know, we didn't do any of that history at school. Um, and the Greeks, you know, were a bit earlier and the Romans were sort of a bit earlier. And, you know, obviously you didn't really learn about Arabia during that time. So I was starting, honestly, from, from nothing. Um, so first of all, what was the first thing I read? I think, first of all, I started reading about the characters because they are uh, real life characters. Um, even though I'm writing a book that's, you know, a retelling um, based on them because of how little evidence we have about them, um, which is a gift to a fiction writer, right? Um, I don't, you know, I can't be Hilary Mantel researching for 10 years to be able to write Bring Up the Bodies. Like, you know, I just, I don't think I've got it in me to do that. So it's great. I, you know, there's lots of, lots of holes to fill. So yeah, I started off by reading about these characters first. Um, and then I, so that I could feel myself into them because I really, they were the sort of the main subject matter and I thought I'd start with them in their lives. And then I realized I had to expand out 
and then I started to ascertain what the themes were and then they would lead me in different directions so trade is very important I didn't realize how central trade was to the nature of the culture um so I started reading all sorts of books in the British Library and historical texts and I have I don't know how many books I've read I probably bought about 20 to 30 books. I have a spreadsheet which has a sources kind of list, which is probably about 50 lines of sources online. And I probably read, I don't know, up to 10 to 20 books from the British Library as well to be able to gather this world. And each time I'd sort of go, okay, this is a chapter about this and I need to understand what it's like to travel with a camel across the desert um, from Mecca to Syria so um, and then I'd be like okay I need to learn about camels and then I need to learn about the desert <laughs> and so I, it's just sort of started you know it was a it's been many many cans of worms everywhere but I let the story lead me so I think I plotted it out first actually after I'd decided which part of the story I was going to tell mm -hmm. Um, and then I let the chapters lead me to the research I needed to do. I think that's how it worked. Wow, that's awesome. Um, you you mentioned that you were brought up Muslim. I guess then you you don't consider yourself Muslim now, or I do consider myself Muslim. I'd say culturally Muslim. Right. Mm -hmm. As far as the rest goes, um, you know, it's a debate in my head. <laughs> cool. Does it um? <laughs> Is it like a, is it a thing you talk about with your family a lot or is it just something you um, with yourself? How do you mean parents? in terms of the debate in my head? Yeah. Uh, I don't really talk to my family about it. Um, my family are devout and practicing and I don't practice as much. Um, but I do, do talk to friends. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have, you know, certain people who I'll have that discussion with generally Muslim friends, but I haven't, I didn't grow up in a big Muslim community or anything like that. You know, I grew up in um, middle England in, in Sevenoaks in Kent. So um, I was never really surrounded with the community and going to a mosque and all of those things that weren't normal for me growing up. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't really have lots of people to be able to discuss this stuff with. Which actually, it's interesting that, that you asked that. In terms of writing this story, it did feel like I was learning, not relearning, but learning things from a completely different angle um, about the religion because I, you don't really get, you know, just as if you're brought up, I suppose, in any um, established religion, you're not necessarily taught to be an academic or an intellectual about the religion you're sort of taught to practice it and what the customs are and things like that are the things that are important you know in a family in a community um going to church whatever reading your quran um but um since reading about this around this book for this book i found that i've i'm looking at it from such a completely different angle even just looking at the Quran in English as a piece of beautiful poetry, which it is, 
um, it's so different to how I learned about it when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been so fruitful. Honestly, it's, it's, um, it's really been such a rich experience. Um, I feel very grateful that I ended up on this path, whatever happens with the book, you know, I've learned so much. Yeah. Um, I think that kind of, I don't know about you, but like it comes with getting older. Like I've just gotten better at like gratitude for things as they are without worrying if they're ever going to lead to something. It just makes life so much better. Like right now I'm just having yeah. a really lovely conversation with you. And like at the end, I'll be like, I'm glad I had that chat. And that's like all I want from this, you know, <laughs> it's not yeah. like, of course I would love for people to listen to it and so on. But like, I'm just like, yeah, I'm having a great time. Good day. You know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. yeah. So clearly I can tell from talking to you that this was a very valuable, um, you know, use of your time, exploration, learning, uh, experience. Um, and it sounds like f- coming at it from a female perspective was important to you as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I really wish I could just say, but I've really, I made a decision before we spoke okay, that I wasn't going to tell you. That, <laughs> um, the person that it's about is, um, she was very unusual and she was very, uh, wealthy and intelligent and powerful, um, women. I mean, at the time, you know, as far as I can gather, it's so hard. I think I spent a while thinking, how can I put myself in these, in the shoes of these people? Like, how, how can I possibly imagine what it was like to be there then? Um, and then, you know, of course, you bring your own stuff to it. And um, in the end, you just lean on the universality of what it is to be human. And, you know, when you have motivations and you want things, how do you feel about them? And you put it in the context of, of the world that you've been able to build and understand around them. And, and I don't know, you just hope that it works, right? But um, yeah, she's a, she was an unusual woman of her time. And um, I was really interested in her because there isn't very much um, really written about her in terms of um, historical accounts. Um, but there's just enough for you to understand what kind of person she was, what her life was like, um, how she ran her business, which, you know, she was a, a really successful businesswoman and um, all of these sorts of things. So, um, yeah, that was really important to me, actually, because I think it was probably going back, you know, I've sort of realised from when I was quite a young teenager, and I'm sure many women looking back will find this as well, that you're kind of looking for your heroes um, and you look for the female heroes and, you know, there were just fewer of those. Mm-hmm. Or they're just one paragraph in a book about a man. And um, that's the same for this person as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just, it's really nice to sort of realise that in a way she's been in my brain for all these years. Um, and I get to give her more space. Looking to you to do her justice, right? <laughs> well, gosh, <laughs> I don't know. That feels like a heavy responsibility. I mean, I can, it's easy, isn't it? When um, I have to say, in a way, I did feel a sense of responsibility writing this book. Um, and I, but before that, even, I felt like, what right do I have to write this, actually? Um, and I think it's a good question to ask when you're writing a story. Um, if there is um, a connection to um, a history or truth um, or real life, or even if you're writing somebody outside of 
very far outside of yourself, you know, are you the right person to do it justice as well? Um, and I didn't want to do it if I, if it wasn't going to be right. And honestly, if I came to the end of the draft and I just thought, I don't feel like this is right, so I put this out there and I haven't done it justice, then I just, I wouldn't put it out there. It's really important to me to get this right. Mm. Um, what about this first book? Like, are you going to explore options to get it out there somehow or? Yeah, I don't, to be honest, I don't really know. I mean, I, I still really like it and I really believe in it. This one is so different to the last one um, that I sort of feel like, and it's a bigger idea maybe. I mean, this isn't actually coming from me. This is my friends. So my, my writing workshop um, the Unruly's who I adore and are just, you know, I, I wouldn't feel brave enough to continue to do this, you know, without all of the amazing discussions that we have constantly. Um, and we've been working together for nearly eight years now, which is amazing. Um, anyway, uh, I trust them completely. And they are just like, kind of like, this is a big idea where the other one, you know, didn't get picked up. This one hopefully will so I don't know we'll see how it goes I'm sort of thinking I still believe in that book but they're both so different um and maybe I am just a better writer now and maybe I should see where this one takes me um but I have a real fondness for that book so I would be really sad if it didn't see the light of day but mm. I mean to be honest with you Leo at this point I'd be happy for any book to see the light of day <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, it's been a long time, um, you know, over 10 years or something now. So mm. I, I'm just ready to to go full professional, you know. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I want to read these books. You've sold them to me <laughs> successfully. So <laughs> yeah. read them here. You're very kind. Thanks. Yeah. Um, do you know what? I, I started a filmmaking club here in Stavanger. So we made, yeah, oh, cool. we made a feature film together just like filming our webcams as if it's like a zoom meeting like a whole feature film that's just like that oh my god i have heard about filmmakers doing this stuff but i haven't seen anything yet how was that it was it was awesome and, and like for, for one reason it's like i started this the club because i wanted to challenge myself to like be creative like in the moment and as part of a team which are things i don't do well and like as a writer it's like take your time it's just you there's no deadline like um only you like so I tried to do that, but then um, because of lockdown and everything, we ended up filming, like, it was just this, it was this chat that we were having, and I was directing, like, one person at a time, and I filmed them one at a time, and then stuck it all together as if they were talking to each other, and that worked out, I didn't know if that was going to work, but it totally worked out great, um, but I loved that, like, I started this thing to challenge myself to work in a team, and then I found a way to do the exact opposite of that, and just make it, like, <laughs> something I was already very comfortable doing, um, but... No, like soon we're going to have a premiere of the film and then we're going to send it off to festivals and stuff. And so, but nobody's ever done any of this before. Um, I certainly never made a film before or anything, but I just kind of only really learned by doing. But in talking to these other people, they're like, maybe this is a start of something big. Maybe somebody's going to pick it up. And I'm like, yeah, maybe, probably not. Did you have a good time though? <laughs> you know, it's, it's um, I think in order to do creative work for this long in the dark you you have to you have to find ways to to enjoy it for its own sake right but at the same time it's like come on you've been writing 10 years somebody pick you up like you're very good can somebody just like support you <laughs> why is that such a big deal 
I mean, you're right. I, to some extent, I do sort of wonder as well. I don't know if you feel like this, um, that when you write by yourself and there is no pressure, in a way, it's such a um, pleasurable place to write from because I'm not thinking about a market and I'm not thinking about a reader. And I know, you know, when you're in the process of actually drafting, I don't think you do that anyway you're just thinking about the technicalities and you know, of what you're doing you know and achieving what you want to achieve but I wonder if it feels different if you have the pressure of you know delivering a product that needs to be sold mm. um, and if that affects how you feel about the writing of it in some way I mean I, I don't know maybe I, I think it's, oh, yes, I, I think it's very, isn't it so easy to idealize things from the outside, right? I mean, why um, why put pressure on this thing that you love? If you do love it and you love exploring it in your own time and, and seeing where the story leads you and so on, and that's the only motivation you have, that's beautiful. And like, when would it be easier to hold on to that other than at this time in your life, you know? Um, but that's something you can only see in retrospect if you, like, if you take off tomorrow you know isn't that a shame yeah. I mean I don't know <laughs> I don't know anything yeah. Yeah, no, same. but I mean to be honest you know I, I suppose all of this what we're talking about the joy of it is about you know being in a state of creative flow and mm. getting to do that and um I mean going back to what you were saying about you know just enjoying the thing for itself I wonder if um you feel like you've felt this more acutely because of lockdown and things as well, or like that there's been more time to reflect on, you know, the things that you do as a human animal, you know, minute by minute, because I sort of think underneath it all, I mean, we were organized and structured and we had these days and we went out to work and I mean, I've been working all the way through this. I also have a day job, but, um, there's structure to my day for sure. But, um, the, the messiness of us that's inside, um, maybe has had more of a chance to sort of come out and have a voice. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And if that animal person says, you know, I, I like eating and I like writing novels and, you know, these are things that give me pleasure and, and here are the things that make me sad. And I don't know. Oh, I, I, yeah, totally. I think that, um, I started having to go back to the office and then it was like, right, I've got to wake up at a specific time. Which it turns out I'm not very good at. I'm good at a lot of things, but not that. And then, like, I'm, I have to make myself breakfast and then, like, coffee and everything. And then I'm, like, running out the door. I leave it in the sink to make sure I get the bus on time. And then I'm, like, on the bus thinking, did I leave the oven on? And then, like, um, you know, and, like, oh, my husband's going to be really annoyed. I left coffee cups in the sink and so on. Like, and this is how I start, this is how I usually start days when I have to go into the office. What does any of this have to do with me being good at my job? And this is how I start every day. And it's like, and, and then you feel silly for starting your day that way. Cause you're also just like, why can't, like, aren't you old enough to get up on time and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, when I had the chance to just wake up and do stuff at my own pace, it was great. And like, I wasn't in an open plan office and like I was calling people in my chats were so much more confident and calmer and kinder and everything. Like, there, yeah, I think the world is structured in such a way that benefits people who aren't me, really. Um, there's so much about, like, if you're going to succeed at business, you have to be, like, an extrovert and network and chat and be confident and everything. And it's like, well, it seems like all of those people were really struggling 
during lockdown when I was like I was like the champion of lockdown. Um, <laughs> maybe they just set up life to benefit them, and maybe there's another way to do things. Uh, yeah, that was a lovely lesson. You know, it's just like there, Leo. There's some things you just don't do very well, and like it doesn't matter because you're good at the other stuff, and it actually like. You just live in a world that's structured such that a lot of emphasis is put on the importance of these things when who cares? And I loved also that like the okay, so there's this big global pandemic and and how you can help? Just stay home and like let the qualified people sort it. And I feel that like with so many world problems, that must be the solution. And therefore, like, you know, we are we may be in some way primed to handle a specific type of emergency that is our emergency to handle and i feel like because of oh i'm going wide with this one but i'm almost done like um yeah this feeling like on social media is that like everyone needs to turn their attention to this one issue that they can all help with and that they all need to start working on now and it's so stressful because that's just really not the case and i think you know there's so many things that you're not qualified to help with that you might actually be doing more damage involving yourself in um, and I think the lockdown kind of taught me that as well. And that was nice because I, I, I think beforehand I was always constantly feeling like there was something useful I was supposed to be doing that I wasn't doing. Um, mm. And now I believe that a bit less. Yeah. Mm. So how, how did it affect you? Yeah, your focus being kind of scattered and split. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, I get that. You mentioned that you think a bit about marketing your books. It sounds like you know, you read this Madeline Miller book and other books, and then you went, all right, right now they're publishing, like, historical retellings. You know, then I can find my niche in this way and focus on this project. Is that how you go about it, or...? No. Um, I've I definitely thought about this book in the context of those um, retelling kind of Greek myths. Um, but the reason why I mentioned those is because... Um, so the... Greek myth retellings were, you know, in a pot staring in my brain when I came up with the idea for this this novel. And so it was, that was much more of a creative springboard. Um, It wasn't about marketing the book and where it might sit, but absolutely that is probably how I'll pitch it when Mm -hmm. it comes to it, which will be, this is also a female-focused myth retelling um, with a historical fiction aspect because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a real person as opposed to a myth, yeah. like Cersei or something. Um, and, you know, that's the universe in which it exists. And I do want it to, I mean, I, I, I could bang on about how amazing Cersei is. I mean, I've bought that book, I think, five times or something for, for other people, other women. Um, I just think it's absolutely stunning and the, the it's so beautiful it's so lush it's some of the sentences like just break my heart with how beautiful they are the imagery and the observations and her relationship with um her father and things like that um you know it absolutely blew me away and I want my book to do that with language and to be heartbreakingly beautiful and that's what I want to achieve and if I don't manage that then I haven't succeeded and that's fine I just put it away and call it a fun couple of years you know yeah, well it's all about the process isn't it it's like yeah it's it's all um yeah it's all part of it how often do you get that that Madeline Miller Cersei feeling with a book 
how often of books that you read? Not, not very often. Yeah, me neither. Not very often, no. <laughs> I mean, so I've been reading a lot through lockdown, actually. I've, I've, um, I felt really sad when I've seen this, but some people have said that they found it difficult to read through lockdown, um, mm. just to focus. And um, I have to say the one place that I can always escape to is, is fiction, um, whether that's writing it or reading it. Um, and I think I've just, I've been obsessed with fiction since I was so young that it's stuck you know it's something in my brain just like shaped in a novel and it's in there and you know it will always be like that so I feel very grateful first of all to be a reader through through this um and to have that escape and secondly to be an artist as well you know because I, I feel very grateful to have that to do because <laughs> I live alone as well I've been living alone through um lockdown which which is fine I've lived alone before but it wasn't how I'd planned things. Um, thankfully, I've got a flatmate coming in in a couple of months' time. But um, so I definitely have had a lot of time on my hands. Um, and everyone's had up and down days, even, you know, somebody like me who, you know, I haven't been in any immediate danger. I haven't been ill. Um, I haven't been exposed to somebody vulnerable. You know, I'm very lucky. Um, and I've also got work and I can survive financially and all of those things. I know that lots of people are struggling with, but you know, it's also been scary and, and touch and go sometimes and, you know, whether business is going to survive and stuff. So all of those things have been difficult, but you know, the fiction has always been there. So I've read so much. Um, and Cersei did that to me last. What was the last thing that I read? I mean, I've read some really beautiful books. Actually, one of my favourite things I've read recently is My Year of Rest and Relaxation. Oh, yeah. Have you read it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. I loved it so much. And she's such a star as well. I then, I'm quite obsessive. So when I like an author, I'll then, you know, Spotify all of the podcast interviews they've ever done and listen to them all. Um, so, yeah, that was just... I, I don't know what it was about reading that book in lockdown as well, because I did sort of think, hmm, would it be interesting to turn oneself into an art experiment and just do loads of weird prescription drugs and, you know, yeah. <laughs> pass out for three days, see what happens. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of interesting to read that in April or May, whenever it was I did. Mm -hmm. When did you read it? I read it, think, I, I, I read it a few years ago. I, I read it, I think, when it came out. Um, yeah. But this, I think at the time, like, the, her justification in the book is that she's lost her... I, don't, I can't remember if this is a spoiler, I'll cut it if it is. She's lost her parents, and that's why she's, like, um, doing this to try and make herself better. Um, and yeah. as somebody who'd also experienced loss, it, it just kind of irritated me. I was like, I don't think that's going to work. I think you've got to get out there. And, like, I, I, I couldn't... Maybe that's the point of it, is to introduce this tension. Like, I couldn't... I found it really uncomfortable to sit watching somebody make no progress at anything you know but then i'm a kind of right, obsessive yeah. progressing person so maybe that's maybe is a, a i don't know a, a rebellion against an overly productive culture mm. Mm. yes i liked that about it where mm. she i did feel actually you're right in terms of grief and the loss in her life being the reason for her maybe quite extreme behavior or this decision that she takes to to speak for a year 
I don't think that's a spoiler. I think she talks about her parents quite early on as well. I'm mm. pretty sure. Anyway, um, you should have read it by now. If you haven't. <laughs> Great. Good one. <laughs> um, but I did think that it was sort of almost like a, a side point. I mean, it wasn't a side point because, you know, she talks about it a lot, but it wasn't the only reason she gave herself for choosing to do what she did, True. I guess. Yeah. And the no grief was there in the backdrop. And, and trauma that she was dealing with I guess mm-hmm. um but yeah you're right I did definitely think oh you're not dealing with this I mean for a start you're crazy therapist oh, who yeah. is just such a brilliant bonkers character <laughs> complete charlatan yeah but I thought she was absolutely you know I mean the comic the dark comedy of of the scenes with her I, I just loved um, and how easy it was for her to pull the wool over her eyes. Um, yeah, everything about that, I loved that that dynamic. Um, but yes, she isn't dealing with her grief. She's definitely escaping mm-hmm. it um, but, in the most extreme way. Yeah, I think you're right, though. It is kind of... She's a very like dissociated character, uh, clearly. Mm-hmm. So I think that it isn't really... The grief doesn't even really register as, as the main point, I agree. She's just like, give this a go. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Have you read her latest one? I've got a copy of it, uh, Death in Her Hands. The new one. No, no, not yet. Okay. Is it out? It's out here. Yeah. Oh, great. Oh, good. Because I thought, oh, I'm going to have to wait ages for another book. Yeah. Oh, cool. I can't wait. Is it? Is it very different? Do you know what it's about? Um, I, th- I think it's like, a, I think it's a historical thing about a, mur- a murder. I think a woman gets murdered and somebody who knows her, it's her life. But then I imagine it's going to be like some random woman just like pottering about. And the fact that somebody died has very little to do with it, you know, knowing Otessa's like quintessential style. I don't know if that's what it's about. <laughs> yeah. Right. Hmm. Oh, so but is the murdered woman the main character? No. No, I, I don't think so. I think it's from the perspective okay. of somebody who knew, I think. Death in Her Hands? Okay. That sounds like that's what it's about, yeah. <laughs> Don't call me yeah, yeah, Death in yeah. Her Hands. It sounds like there is another female protagonist, which I can't, after Elaine and mm. um, Western Relaxation, I can't imagine her doing a male protagonist. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm sure she is perfectly capable of writing an amazing male protagonist, but mm. I'm like, you write these incredible female characters, I just want to keep reading them. Um, actually, that makes me think of... Um, this is not the same kind of book at all, but um, one of the other really great female um, protagonist-led novels I read, actually much earlier on this year, I think probably, it it was a pre-lockdown book, um, is My Sister the Serial Killer. Oh, yeah. Um, Did you read that? No, I've not read that one. Oh, it's it's absolutely hilarious. It's brilliant. Um, And it is about exactly what the title says it is, and it's very dark um and really good fun so i recommend it cool you might like it you liked the other one yeah um the other book that's blown me away which actually i read last year but it stayed with me in terms of you know cersei like um how lush and gorgeous it is is um on earth we're briefly gorgeous by oh yeah Ocean Bond. oh it took my breath away i think um i was thinking about going back to it actually i've only read it once um I bought it on my Kindle and I bought a hardback because I bought it on my Kindle so I could travel with it as well. 
<laughs> and I sometimes do that with books I love. I'll have it on my Kindle. Um, sorry, guys, Amazon, but it's just I had a Kindle since I started when I did my master's and uh, it was just I couldn't buy any more physical books for that. So I bought Kindle. Anyway, um, yeah, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous is just uh, that novel hasn't left my head, I don't think, mm-hmm. since I read it. Um, and I've since obsessively listened to all of Ocean Wong's interviews and the way he talks about writing. Wow. Just his voice. I could just listen to him all day. Awesome. I haven't, I haven't uh, heard any interviews with him, but I'll check him out. Um, all of like stu- contemporary stuff that I've read, like I, like, I know this isn't great, but I'm a huge Lionel Shriver fan. Do you know her? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know her. I mean, I haven't, I haven't really read her very much. Okay. I've, I've read. We need to talk about Kevin. Yeah. Which is so old, and I know that her um, novels actually reach very widely, very varied subject matter and stuff. I, I gather that she's a skilled writer. Hmm. I find her politics a little bit questionable, but yeah, can't that's stand fine. listening to her anymore. It's just nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> read of hers that you've loved um well her latest one came out this year it's called the motion of the body through space and it's about like people being obsessed with um well i guess it kind of ties into the productivity culture things people being obsessed with trying to run marathons and like always bettering their body to the point that they start damaging them and like um this elderly woman's husband wants to run a marathon for the first time and so she's just in the background the whole time being like uh, you get that like this has been done before and nobody cares and like <laughs> do it if you want but I, l- literally nobody cares if you manage to do this <laughs> and I'm just like yeah I love that perspective <laughs> who cares if you can run a marathon it's been done before and like she's I, I just love that she gives voice to these like really stupid perspectives that like are not really that necessary or helpful or popular um, because I hold a lot of them myself <laughs> So that's she's like she's like a voice for me very often saying things that are like too I don't know pointless and cynical to to bother your time thinking about. But she has this amazing book, um, so much for that, uh, which is about the American healthcare system. It's a man's wife gets read about that one, yeah, yeah. It's like a guy's wife gets very ill, and so it starts to. I don't think he has the right type of insurance, so it just starts to drain his bank account, and it's like it's deeply unfair. And they ask very difficult questions about like the the value of human life that is gained from from spending all this money on 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 healthcare, which is you know what that kind of system forces you to ask. Um, and when I first read it, I was like, because like the each chapter starts with the guy's bank account, like what is in his bank account, and it depletes as the chapters go on. And I was like, I had to put it down. I was like, this is too uncomfortable. Um, I suppose that do you get that feeling with books? That's when I've hit something that like. I really need to return to and will have like an important thing for me to consider when I'm ready. Do you feel that sometimes? That you can't keep going because something's too bleak. Or just too real or like, I don't know. Yeah. Too bleak, Um, definitely. Yeah. Not the same, but I've recently, I think I mentioned earlier, I've been reading, um, oh no, I didn't say, but I mentioned her. Um, I've been reading the Hilary Mantel Crummel trilogy. Um, I'm actually, and I'm, I'm reading them for the first time. And 
and I know they've been out for years and years and she's a legend and don't ask me why it's taken me this long. Um, but she's been a teacher to me, honestly, for writing historical fiction. Um, and, but one of the things I have found, she is this master of her Cromwell and her Cromwell is so real and the books are so intense in experience because they're very close third person and so it's it's as close third as you can get without it being first person. A lot of the time, you very rarely even see his name, for example, in the text. Um, it will always just say he, and you always know that when the prose refers to he, it's always Cromwell because you're inside his head. It's very, it's incredible. Um, and I found, after I read the first one and I immediately embarked on the second one because I'm obsessive um, and I wanted to keep going. And then I did sort of find a little bit like I've been with Cromwell for so long and I've just, you know, I'm inside his head. And that was a very real experience. And, and I also happened to, I did a Renaissance studies masters like years ago. And so I know about that time in history um, from a like historical point of view very very well and I've kind of obsessed over the Tudors and Elizabeth the first and, and read so much about them and watched all the movies and all of that stuff and that's probably partly why I, I didn't read these books and it is a completely different view and um yeah those I had to put down bring up the bodies halfway through a little while ago because I was in lockdown I was living inside Cromwell's head and I'd been living it for so long it was getting a bit too real so it's not the same as what you just described, but similar in terms of it's it's bleak in there and I just need to pull out for a bit. Fair, fair. I'm jealous that you can so, you know, be so consumed by books. I find that so rare. Um, though I suppose that like my interest is more like about identity of ideas rather than like a, a, a realism. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I guess I guess we go to literature for for different things, maybe. Um, but yeah, uh, How do you mean identity sorry. of ideas. Do you mean like a, the extrapolation of big ideas with a novel? I guess you know that's where you are with you know being a genre writer as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I think that um, yeah, like I mean, science fiction when it like really takes off and they've got like three or four or five different inventions in a world and they've created like a I don't know a world and a culture in which like people's minds are changed by all of these enormous like um there's this film the wandering earth that's on netflix it's not that great but um it was based on a short story by si sin lu who's uh, like a huge chinese science fiction writer in which um i think the sun is going to die so they blast earth off to try and join a different solar system and like he he, he works out how you would do that and then starts to talk about like how people would like live underground and how that affects their mentality and the way that like their marriages change as a result of like you know it's just insane like stacking all of these different enormous ideas together and then demonstrating like how people would live in that world um mm -hmm. it's not like i am those characters i'm just like in awe from a distance kind of going it would be like that or does that is that how that works you know that's the joy i yeah. get from it yeah but i mean that sounds to me like you're really entrenched in that, you know, weird space where people are living underground. But 
I guess, do you think you think about it more technically? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, I think my own writing has progressed, like, away from lyrical and more towards, like, very, very clear language because the ideas are getting more complicated. So I, I yeah. really pursued that. And, like, I've been thankful that, like, I've read, I've read so many more literary magazines now that I see people who, like, they'll tell they'll tell story after story not using a single word that, like, I haven't seen. I didn't know when I was, like, 12. Um, but they're telling such intensely complicated stories that you're so glad the language is so clear. Um, mm. Whereas I think before I used to read that stuff and be like, oh, they're not doing enough, you know. But I really, I really get that now, and I love that style. Um, mm. And I don't think that I read often, like, to find myself, which I think is maybe something you do. I, I know that's, like... Maybe I should, you know, I I don't, um, I'm just, I don't really feel very recognized at all. <laughs> so I don't really know if that's something I look for in books. Is it yeah. something that you look for? Um, I don't think I look to find myself. I think I look to find other people. So the reason why, for example, um, the Cromwell trilogy is so engrossing is is purely because Mantel is able to put you inside the head of Thomas Cromwell and Thomas Cromwell is nothing like me but or I'm nothing like him rather <laughs> to say <laughs> but um but her Cromwell is so real to me I that I get him to the extent that I start to see myself in him a bit so, but I don't think that's because I'm like him. I think it's just because that's how skillful she is. Um, I mean, I can probably identify more closely with Cersei the Witch on an Island, to be honest, because that metaphor feels like it sits quite well in my own life. <laughs> I should probably not say that. Um, as an outcast of a woman, you know, that sort of thing. But again, um, yeah, I think actually I'm much more about um, just getting lost in a world and a character. And I think it's probably quite childlike of me in a way, which is that, oh my God, it's a great story and it's a great character and I'm just there. Mm. Um, I don't know why I get engrossed in that way. Um, I think I'm just lucky and I get to read lots of really great books <laughs> and they just do that. And I just dive right in, you know. <laughs> I don't need to be convinced to suspend my disbelief or anything like that. I'm like, right, yeah, I'm there. Mm. I mean, one of the books, you, as you were saying about, I, I don't really read very much um, contemporary sci-fi or horror anymore. I used to much more when I was a teenager. And I've been thinking, actually, after I finished this book, and probably because I've been reading so much historical source material as well and, and non-fiction, which I don't usually read, I'm now hungering for ghost stories, horror, sci-fi, um, and I'm I'm gonna you know just I think indulge after I've done this. Mm. Um, but um, I was thinking about Station Eleven, which is probably um, the closest thing to uh, sort of sci-fi dystopia that I've read recently that I've really really loved. Yeah, I read it back a year ago actually, but I I hadn't come across it until then. Mm -hmm. um, and it totally blew my mind. And it does what you're saying, um, I think, in terms of what happens if you put a bunch of people under this kind of pressure 
that's a pandemic as it happens, but it becomes a very dystopian world, right? It's a very like said for Zachariah kind of world where, you know, there are just like a, a small group of people wandering around a barren land um, and all the people are gone. Mm. And um, there is, you know, lots of strong elements of um, weird dystopian events and actions and behaviors in that. Um, weird enough that it's clearly not the real world but mm. I felt very involved in that as well I mean I was there with them you know going through America trying to find a safe place and, and that kind of thing mm-hmm. um are you a Margaret Atwood fan yes I hesitate ever so slightly just because um I didn't get the testaments I'm sorry <laughs> but I love Margaret Atwood. I love Margaret Atwood otherwise, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's a writer called Meg uh, Elison, E-L-I-S-O-N. She has a trilogy of books called, first one's called The Book of the Unnamed Midwife. And it's about, yeah, um, it's about a pandemic in which I think there's like few surviving women. And so it, it takes place from the perspective of a woman who's disguised herself as a man in order to survive in like, a male-dominated dystopia. Oh, great. Um, that sounds great. So, Because, like, I think, um, yeah, within genre fiction, there's a lot of, like, as you can tell, that kind of thing tackles a lot of con- interesting and contemporary ideas just within a genre world. I think the only reason I've, I've come to call my fiction science fiction or horrors because, like, that's what gets it published, you know, but I don't really care. I'm just like, that seems like an interesting idea. I'll see where that goes. Um, yeah. but I think for a while I was scared of writing science fiction because it's so like it's just so complicated and I feel like I, I hadn't read enough you need to read so much of it to understand like what's been covered and how to you know make all these ideas interplay without getting I used to get so confused and get them all tangled up but like okay so wait mm-hmm. if there's there's nanobots in this world and like you know you can this person could get pregnant how could you get pregnant if there's nanobots and like the camera can see her and i was like all right forget it <laughs> just, uh, i don't know how this works like it gets so complicated unless you like i don't know it feels like it stretches my brain the most and like as a, a science an engineer by day it's like a real use of like my background plus creativity so that's what i really like about it oh yeah. that makes so much sense of course mm. you are yes i remember now i knew that you were an engineer yeah. That really makes a lot of sense. Because I have to say, um, I'm, I'm in awe of it when it lasts mm. over an entire novel length. Yeah. And I know that sci-fi can get really long as well when you go deep into genre fiction. Mm. Um, and that makes sense too. Um, but uh, whilst I've written quite a lot of stuff that I would define as weird, and then some plain kind of ghost story. Like your um, um, Stockholm Review of Literature story. Oh yeah, that one's yeah. I'd I'd call that one weird, yeah. Um, and then last year, or was it the year before? I published a what's really just a ghost story, kind of like a quite a classic ghost story, M.R. James, Shirley Jackson inspired sort of thing, mm-hmm. but set in Bangladesh. Mm. Um, and I sort of last year I toyed with, and I think I might write a few more in this um, world, um, a short story which is about sort of life on the cloud so there's life on earth and there's life on the cloud um so it's not i don't know what you'd call that it's not sci-fi but anyway that was enough so it's a short story and i had to describe 
some of the technicalities of how you would transfer your life onto a cloud. And that was honestly enough technical stuff to try and get my head around. I'm like, I don't know how, I don't know, China Mayville does Perdido Street Station, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're actually creating language because English language as it stands doesn't provide you with all the words you need to describe what on earth it is that's going on. I'm, I'm in awe of that, honestly, the level of um, world building required. Yeah, that's something else. Yeah. But did you start with, um, did you kind of start with one foot in reality or did you like go straight into sci-fi when you first started? Yeah, no, I think I was always writing sci-fi. Like the, the book that came out now, uh, Grieve, is like, it's taken me eight years to write because I wouldn't give up the first thing I wanted to write. You know, I think we all like start with what we think is a really amazing novel idea and then it just fails. But I just wasn't willing to let that happen. So I kept going back until I had skills enough to say what I wanted to say. And then like after eight years, I was like, you know what? If I've not said it by now, <laughs> I can't do this. So uh, I think by that time it was out. But yeah, no, I've always come back to that. I think um, I always I was thinking about this today. Do you know the, the film Solaris, the version that has George Clooney in it? Have you seen that one? Oh, I've seen that one. Okay. Because like... In the original. Oh, you've seen the original. Okay, well then you know that the, like, the main concept is the idea that, you know, our, our memories of people are not the same as the people themselves. Like when I saw that when mm-hmm. I was so young, like we all know that like inherently, but I think that film like let me teach that to myself. And then I was like, that blows my mind. I want to do that. Like, so if your, your idea is to break people's hearts through myth retellings, like mine is like, teach people stuff using sci-fi, you know, yeah. like existential ideas that we understand vaguely, but, but you know, that really resonate with us when we see them on, on the page. Um, yeah. And I think that's what I'm doing, actually. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So um, how much do you start with um, what the world, how the world functions, mm-hmm. or do you start with the idea or like it's you know nobody's the same as what we remember them to be oh i see your point um yes so i start with like yeah i start with maybe the idea and what i want what the message uh i want to land on is so i have those two things and then i'll start to write it and as i do like i can then i can layer on other sci-fi concepts because you know if you're going to build a proper sci-fi world there won't only be there often won't only be just one new type of technology there will be three or four and so people will be like you know, talking to holograms of themselves or 3D printed versions of people that they know, like at the same time, and all of this needs to have, your story requires all of these things and has to progress in a way that like this technology would facilitate it and not impede it, you know, um, so it, it can get very complicated. But yeah, so start with like the single core idea and maybe what the message is at the end, then just start to write it and then question other things like okay so they sit down the one i'm writing at the moment it's like okay so they sit down and they have a talk they have a discussion about maybe seeing uh a friend of theirs hanging out with a bunch of people that he's printed um because he like and he's not hanging out with them anymore um so i'm like okay so then what what are their jobs do they have jobs regarding that what kind of jobs will there be in a future where you can print people (laughs) um and then you go like well what are they eating what will be sustainable in the future and where will they be eating it? And like, then 
I don't know, what are they drinking? What are they going to do afterwards? How are they going to entertain themselves? How are they going to confront their friend? Um, and what will the ultimate explanation be? You know, just like any piece of fiction, really, you just you set off yeah. the premise and then all these questions come to you, right? And then you go about answering them. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess and the do same you, thing. like when you're building these kind of worlds, do you have like um, a pool of other fiction that's like helping you along the way? Yes, that, You know, maybe absolutely. you steal from or... Mm, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I will write, I will write a list. I'll go, this reminds me of these five stories that I've read. I'm going to go back and read these and work out what it is about this idea has reminded me about these five stories. And that will always yield like, oh, I love what they did structurally here. Or I love how they introduced this character there. And yeah, I'm very explicit about like going back, reading the stuff that that inspired it and never really being afraid of that. Because I think some people are like, oh, if it's too close to what I'm writing, I don't want to read it. I'm like, no, get involved. Like, because... As you know, like your creativity or imagination is like it just goes on endlessly. You find a way to push your thing away from the thing that inspired it. Um, I, f- I find the best way to do that is just by reading what inspired it. You know, shamelessly. So yeah. why not? You know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I'm exactly the same. I completely agree. Mm-hmm. I think I wonder if some people people seem to be one or the other, and maybe some people just find it when they're really, really in their own world that they're creating likes another world that's close to it is a distraction or something Mm. um but yeah I'm all for I mean look I just think these things that we're writing you know they belong um ultimately when they're done they belong in this universe of of books that already exist and you know I I owe my stories to all of these other books you know without Mm. them I, I wouldn't be doing this so um I'm like they're my ancestors you know, yeah. I pay them respect sort of thing. Yeah. Clever. I like that idea. Um, For me, it's always like anything I'm working on is something I want to exist. And I'm happy, like, uh, I want it to exist in the best possible way. And I'm happy to do anything to make that happen. Um, And so when it's come to filmmaking, like, I I give credits to everyone. I'm like, all right, you kind of have directed that. We're both directors. Like, it doesn't, I don't care. I just want the thing to exist. You know, I'm not bothered about um needing to feel like I did it all on my own. You know, <laughs> like, it doesn't. Who cares? It doesn't matter at all. Yeah. yeah. It's so wonderful to go over no. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I suppose that's just um I think you just learn that in your own process. I think you just when you know what it takes to get a creative project done. Mm-hmm. But the filming is so interesting. Why did you I want to go back to that. Why did you decide to make a movie? Yeah, sure. Um well I I needed a new creative outlet um last summer. Um I just needed something new to do. And I was talking to my friend, we were watching films and we were saying like, what, what would you do if not the thing that you've chosen to do with your life? Um, and so I said, maybe I would be a therapist. And he was like, really? You don't like listening to people's problems? And I was like, all right, strike that one. Um, so then I said, well, maybe like an indie film director. And he was like, oh yeah, you, you know, I would like to do that too. It seems like a really rewarding process. And then I was like, hang on, what's stopping us? Um, it turns out nothing. I mean, people make f- films on iPhones. So that's what I started doing. I spent a year just taking my phone around town and, you know, I was like, okay, who can be available that day? Let's write something around that. That was a wonderful, like, uh, way of testing your creativity. Like, it has to be so much more flexible because you have to rewrite things based on, like, we couldn't find an orange cup. So sorry, you're going to have to deal with, like, a different colored cup or no cup at all. So, you know, and you have to keep reiterating things to to to, to fit your environment. Um and, and yeah, I think it just naturally fit with me wanting to work in a team and find my tribe here in Stavanger um, because mm. it's very, 
the longer I stay here, the more I feel like it's it's like a little Norwegian village still, and everyone's friends with who they went to school with, and um, you only learn what's going on through word of mouth. So I'm always like walking past the cafe, going like, oh, "Is that Knausgård in there? I w- I would have wanted to go to that, and nobody tell you know like no actually, but stuff like that." So yeah. um, so I did. I totally found my people. It took a long time, but then I just I started a filmmaking club. And people were like, all right, so are you like, did you study this? I was like, nope. <laughs> I was like, they were like, what can you do? And I showed them like a minute long thing I'd made on my iPhone. And I was like, but <laughs> you know, I love that too, that um, you don't have to fake it till you make it. Just, uh, I think that I earned people's trust by being completely honest about what I'm capable of, which when I started was next to nothing. Um, and then I found the exact right level of skill in the people around me, which was also next to nothing. Okay, you've never acted before you're interested in that. Let's put you in front of a camera. Like, how that's the best way you're going to learn, you know? Like, I, I, I'm not going to... Nobody here is going to laugh at you if you fail. Like, it's fine, you know? Because, I mean, like, us writing fiction so many times, like, how often have you started a story that didn't work? Like, you know, I, I would be able to avoid doing that if it was possible. Like, I'm not. So I, I didn't mind making stuff that I thought was bad or, or you know, the sound was off, whatever, because it, it all added up to, you know, after full year, me having the skills to make a feature film. Um yeah wow yeah so so i don't know i just really um yeah i just love it i love it um and and it's so interesting to you know it's something that i think so many people want to do but they don't do it because they're afraid of being in front of a camera or they think it's going to be too expensive and like there's free software for all the stuff you need to do you can use your phone to film it's all there really is no excuse like the cost is is next to nothing um you know obviously you can improve with bits and pieces over time but you can certainly start learning the skills straight away um and just to like see um like i met this woman i i know a woman here who um i met her at a party and i saw her and i said hey like uh she has a an mfa in creative writing so hey i started a filmmaking club we're definitely going to need you there like we're to write stories and stuff and she was like yeah um i don't think i'm creative in that way and i thought like okay i get it like screenplays are a bit different um maybe you maybe it is the the lyrical language thing or so on but it just seemed like i hoped that it wasn't something that like she was interested in and was like telling herself that she couldn't be a part of because i mm-hmm. i saw other people doing that out of fear um and when you see other people doing that it's such a firstly you think um like i don't care that much if you mess up and secondly like no excuse you're going to give me is good enough to justify you not doing this if it's something you're interested in um and then you tell that to yourself afterwards you're just like you saw people doing that that was not helpful or like a good look um you, you know so then you grow as a person from it as well i think yeah love that leo honestly you're so i mean that's i love that focus and drive to like just try it out and make it happen and I mean look at all the stuff you do podcasts writing fiction now filmmaking like yeah. it's just it's such a joy that's so lovely to hear and actually um I guess you know the filmmaking bit is is really courageous of you to try because of the collaborative nature of that process yeah um and while you said that you've sort of found a way of doing it as if you're kind of a solo writer or whatever. <laughs> I still think, you know, you've brought those people together and, you know, given people just, you know, the openness and, and the chance to 
um, just give it a go, which is amazing. Um, and I think, yeah, there's been a huge democratization of, of filming and stuff like that with obviously better technology and, and easier access to cheap technology. And um, so I, I love that you're also playing with that. And especially now with the Zoom, um, you know, that's, I just think it's gorgeous to freely experiment in that way. Oh, thank you so much. I feel like um, it's funny because there's so many things within the filmmaking world that we don't have in the writing world. Like there's a kind of um, um, cliqueiness about good kit. People are like, I-, I won't work with you unless it's like this level of quality, which I think is so funny. And and um, like I said, I don't like being told what to do. So once I heard that, I was like, right, quality will no longer be a consideration. I'm filming people on webcams. Like I'm not catering to you people at all. Um yeah. But yeah, no, I've, I mean, I've always believed people, like it's, um, I've always believed that anyone can do anything they want. And like, if somebody watched my film and thought I could do that, that would be like the best thing my film could do for people. Because I believe you can also, you know, um, and like it gets people like us connected, which is lovely. You know, we get to catch yeah. up and I hear how you're progressing and learn about the interesting stuff you've written. Like, fantastic. That's what it's all about, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I totally agree. I totally agree. Especially when, I mean, sometimes it can get, actually uh, you know I love writing mm. but you're doing this by yourself all of the time constantly creating by yourself you know I mean some of the joys of writing for me just the whole world of it is having workshops and getting to read other people's work and discuss it actually and get out of your world and brain and, and get into somebody else's um and in a way with filmmaking like you know you're not by yourself are you like, you you are having to coordinate and work with different people and their ideas and stuff. And that's gorgeous. I have to say, I just, um, having known some film people um, and how films get made, especially in the mainstream and, you know, when they have budgets and they're going to be distributed um, traditionally and things like that. um, I'm amazed they even happen. I'm like, I don't even understand how, you make scenes work within a budget and it's it's okay like all of these moving parts and it's like a whole new company is pulled together yeah in order to make a film happen yeah um all the financing and the selling and you know the writing i'm just in fact the the idea and the script seem to become almost less important in the whole scheme of things mm-hmm so yeah, I'm kind of in awe of filmmaking, to be honest. Yeah. I love film and I love movies and I've obsessively watched them since since I was really young, but um, I've, I'd never even think about doing anything beyond maybe writing a script and I haven't tried any of those, so. Well, you, you, you <laughs> I think can... Places Up Come is a play. <laughs> oh, right, nice. Well, you can, um, you're always free to write something and send to us and we can make it. You can take a look at it, as long as it doesn't cost anything. Oh, any. wow, <laughs> that would be so cool. Go for it. Hey, maybe we could write a Zoom short. Absolutely, we should. Like, we're, I'm obsessed with, like, um, I just got this, because I've got a ton of scripts now. Um, The Sunset Limited, Cormac McCarthy, don't know if you know it. Oh, I haven't read that one. Okay, it's an HBO, what is that? It's an HBO film. Um, And it's like, it's they call it a novel in dramatic form. This is basically like the screenplay of the film. It's like Samuel L. Jackson and Tommy Lee Jones are two guys sitting in, like, Samuel L. Jackson's kitchen chatting for like an hour and a half and I've become like obs- yeah I've become obsessed with this form because I was like wait how much can that cost like I know two people I own a living room I'm going to make 10 films of guys chatting like I love it 
Um, I'm writing that down because that I don't know why I don't know this movie. How yeah. old is it? I think maybe 2000, like early 2011, something like that. I only heard of it. Okay. Yeah. I searched for like single room dramas, um, single room like drama films. And I've watched like all of them and I love it. Cause like, okay, our, our film is like takes place on a screen. So it's like, you know, um, it's essentially one room really. Cause nobody's moving. They're just, the the plot unfolds over dialogue. Um, and if you're good, like, if you've been writing long enough to do that, I think that's why people like go into debt for the first films. Cause they're like, that's such a constraint if you have to stay in the same room that, you know, it'd be easier to write something where you've got three, four, five different locations then your cost goes up and everything. Having written for so long, I could start doing this like very intense, constricted form of drama. Um, and now that's like all I want to do because it doesn't cost anything. So nobody can tell me what to do. So this is, which yeah, is the whole goal, you no, know? No one <laughs> yeah. I love not being told what to do. I immediately thought of Tape. Have you seen Tape? Yes. Yeah, that was one of the ones I've watched. Yeah. Oh my God. Such a great movie. And yeah. that is, um, it's one room, but it's also one take, I think. Is it? It feels like. Oh, maybe, maybe, yeah. Um, and just like two cameras, which is like, um, do you know Cassavetti's films? No. John Cassavetti's. So I think, um, we're the best one. A Woman Under the Influence, you might like. Okay, I'm writing this down. Mm-hmm. That's quite an intense film, but it's... Uh, basically, all of his films were just like um, two cameras, two people shooting cameras, maybe from like opposite sides of the room, more or less, so that the actors were free to do what they want. Um, and then, you know, it, it, film can get so restricted because it's just like, right, say that one line, um, like, to an empty chair, pretend that she's there and she'll come back and film that, like, in an hour. Um, it's so, like, okay, you can do that, but but you would want to preserve the genuine emotional connection. That's what it's all about for me, really. Um, you want to preserve that as much as possible. So I prefer styles in which... Uh, I mean, I could talk about this forever. But I prefer styles in which, like you, you know, you preserve the what the actors do best. Yeah. yeah. So if I can just do two cameras, two people sitting chatting. Um. So me and one of the people who made the film, I'm going to write something for us to do uh, over Christmas at his mother's art studio because apparently it's very creepy. So. Oh wow. That's cool. Yeah. How cool. Yeah. So could it be? So it might be a horror. Yes, it's horror. It's, yeah, we've got a kind of concept in mind. I still have to write it, but yeah, some sort of horror. I'm thinking that like I've kidnapped him. Um, I'm going to find out why, which I think is cool. Because I love this book. Um, it's, it's on my shelf of research. The Collector, John Fowles. Oh, I've never read that one. I've read a couple of Fowles. I read The Magus and um, French Lieutenants. Oh, that's br- the, the Magus is a brilliant one as well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I haven't read that one. Would you recommend it? Yeah, yeah, and there's a film of that as well, actually, yeah. No, that that's one of the books that gave me that that really in-depth feeling because there's such, like, an interesting... It's it, So it is a man that kidnaps a woman, and so it's quite a difficult story, but there's a really lovely unfolding of how she tries to learn who he is and how they discuss the nature of what it is he's trying to collect about her and so on, so it becomes a really interesting discussion. Again, two people in a room. I've obviously got a thing for that, so... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's also very, um, it's very play-like. Yeah, what yeah, yeah. You're describing as well, in a way. Um, it does make me think of, um, like a couple of plays, which the names of which I can't remember right now, but they'll come to me. Um, but yeah, which you know, 
you get many plays which are just set in a single room, I suppose. Um, it's just easier on stage, isn't it? But um, I mean, classic Tennessee Williams, actually, you know, he's always in a house. It's usually cool. very small. Um, you know, Castle on a Hot Tin Roof, Streetcar Named Desire, they're, they're all just in very stifling domestic spaces for yeah. a reason, because you get that tension building up difficult characters, big characters always, right? I, I love Tennessee Williams. He's, I think, one of my all-time favourite playwrights. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so yeah, it makes it feel like uh, you're doing a cross between, not a cross between, but it's something feels very... Um, drama to me as well. I think you're right yeah I just I guess I'm favoring forms in which like all the emphasis is on the writing quality because if nobody's moving and there's not like terribly interesting images to look at then everything they're saying has to be the most compelling um so I guess I've done like a really writerly way of going about film but uh but I think that also like the everything that we make we start to involve more cinematic principles like this time I'm going to film from a high angle to show that this character is dominant and so on and we just we progressively add things so i've started from a place of like maximum comfort i suppose which is like all emphasis on writing and we're slowly becoming a bit more cinematic as things go but if you want to write something that's you know just a few people chatting in a cafe or you know whatever comes to you we'll film it and we can credit you well it's funny you should say because i'm actually after this next novel um, or rather this current novel is finished, um, I'm going to write a short, what I thought was going to be a play, mm-hmm. but it actually lends itself very well to what you're describing. So basically, I was really lucky um, to get on um, a workshop with Inua Ellens um, two weeks ago, and I haven't written drama in a while, um, and I had this long poem that I've been writing for a couple of years now, actually, it just wasn't quite working. And then it, I split it. It was like one voice and I was splitting it into two voices and it became this conversation. And then this workshop came up and I was like, mm, I think it could be a play, actually. Um, as it happens out of the workshop, another play has come along. And um, it's the setup is, um, you know, Joe Rogan. I already love wherever um, this is going. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not Joe Rogan, but um, his podcast is always filmed on YouTube. Yeah. You can listen to it on iTunes and stuff, but you can also watch it if you want. And he's always in the studio with his guest. Um, and obviously he's had some some famous incidences with guests, like um, the blunt smoking incident with... Um, oh, Elon, Elon Musk. Elon Musk, thank you. Um, and interesting drama can sometimes ensue with this kind of, you know, watching them recording a podcast episode. Mm. Anyway, the so my play is set um, sort of in a podcast um, studio, and it's a similar kind of setup, and it's a similar kind of big character interviewer. Um, but the conceit is that it's two women who've fallen out a long time ago. Um, and neither of them was where they are today in the time of the play. Um, but um, one of them is now a famous podcast host, um, and she has millions of listeners, and the other one is now a famous hip-hop artist, and the podcast is um, about hip-hop artists. Um, and she always interviews the great and the good, and um, she is asked by her people to interview this hip-hop artist who happens to be 
an old friend that they fell out very badly. So now you've got these two women in the studio, they haven't seen each other in years and they have to pretend to do this interview. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you're just getting all of the tension and so unresolved. If we issues. filmed it as if it looked like the Joe Rogan podcast thing, but it yeah, was a drama. Hey, I know somebody who like runs a podcast and like has filming stuff, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and I, I know, I know at least two women you might be surprised. So, you know, I think um, it would be quite easy to to film, actually. And I would love uh, if um somebody else wrote some stuff because I forgot like how difficult it is to write something, um, you know, with with the proper structure and everything. Because my idea was like once we take off, other people would start writing shorts. But so far, nobody else has has taken me up on that. Um, so if you want to write stuff for me, it would take the burden off of me having to write everything all the time as well. Well, you know, I'll give you my play. We'll convert it into a script and maybe, you know, maybe that one could work. I would love to do that. Send it off to festivals and then we'll meet in London, glass of champagne. (laughs) Too easy. (laughs) As soon as all this stuff is over, we could like even hug maybe. (laughs) And that would make it worth it. (laughs) Hey! The drink and the hug alone. (laughs) Yeah, go for it. Why not? We'll keep in touch about it. Yeah, that's yeah, that sounds great. Cool. What are you doing with your evening? I am well. To be honest, I'm kind of itching to write my next chapter because I've just figured out a big plot problem that I had, and I think I found a solution. And when that happens, I just want to write and and get it done. Uh, but um, mainly, you know, it's Wednesday night, so probably a wild night of making dinner and. Um, Possibly watching The Deep Blue, which The National has on um, their YouTube. I don't know if you've been watching any of their plays, but they've been um, they've been streaming them on YouTube. And um, I saw this when it was on stage a number of years ago now, um, and I was really pleased to see that they filmed it. Um, it's another interesting film thing, actually, because I don't know if you've seen that many plays filmed, but I'm sort of... I've, I've seen some that work really, really well and, and some less so. And The National have been filming them and streaming them for some time now. Um, so anyway, I might watch that because I've got that on my list and I think it finishes tomorrow, actually. So um, so I might watch a play tonight from the Fancy. comfort of my own kitchen. So good. How about you? Uh, I'm going to rewatch uh, the sci-fi classic Cube. Have you ever seen it? The oh, late 90s. I have never seen it, but I okay. should see it. Where is, is it on somewhere? No, just just gonna stream it from somewhere. But um, okay. would you like it? I don't know. I don't know if it, it's quite it's quite like violent and weird. But again, like sci-fi, everyone in one room. Like I'm sold. <laughs> I can't wait. No, I'm gonna write it down. Um, weird and violent sounds like my cup of tea to me. Oh, really? Interesting. So, but then you need to give me a film recommendation before you go. Oh, gosh. But I haven't watched things like that in ages because I became a wuss over lockdown and I haven't watched a horror since the beginning. Anything else is fine. Um, So just, like, the way to explain it is that there's quite a lot of gins in my novel. I started getting really obsessed with reading about gins and then um, I'd go for, like, evening walks and think about gins because they live under trees, you know, at sunset and things like that. And uh, I started to freak myself out. And I'd also moved into a new flat just before lockdown. And, and it's sort of bigger than my last space. And uh, I just felt a bit like 
I was going to freak myself out if I watched any horror. And I love horror. So I haven't watched anything weird or violent in ages. But I do have on my list, uh, which I missed, Gaspar Noé's last movie, which came out in 2018. Climax. Um, and what is it? Sorry? Climax it's called, I think. Climax, yes. So I haven't seen it yet, mm-hmm. but that is sort of the next violent, weird thing. That's high on my list as well. Yeah, good. I think we we have a similar taste in films, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I sort of I've definitely eased off a little bit on the weird, but only because practical, practical, psychological reasons. (laughs) Fair. Great. Well, so lovely talking to you. We'll keep in touch. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, not at yeah, all. Yeah, I'm so glad you got in touch. So it's, it's really, really nice to catch up. And listen, um, where can I get your book? Oh, I think um, you about this. And I was going to order it at the time and I missed out. So I'm going to do that now. Just to send me your address. Look, I've got a ton of them here. Oh, no, but I want to I want to support the press and stuff. Ah, okay, sure. Um, it's just yeah, just yeah, on yeah, Amazon. You can take you, you can take down the name I'd of it. I'd rather support. If you want. Agree. Oh, I'll be able to find it on Uncle. Awesome. Brilliant. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, Take care of yourself. And uh, maybe we'll talk about scripts and stuff. Please do. Yeah. All right. Have a lovely evening. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Okay, so that was SS Hack. Hope you enjoyed our chat. You can always get in touch with me using losingtheplotpodcast at gmail.com if you so choose. Um, Other than that, thanks for listening, and uh, until next time, bye-bye.